Glad that you're here today. This is Resurrection Sunday. I like to call it Resurrection Sunday rather than Easter Sunday because that's what it is. We celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Every Sunday is Resurrection Day because we gather to celebrate and worship our living Savior. But I'm glad you're here today and I invite you to take your Bibles, please, and turn to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, we're going to begin with chapter 15 and verse 42 and go through chapter 16 and verse 4. And the title of the message today is Stones, the Resurrected Christ Rolls Away. Again, I'm using the term resurrected Christ rather than the word Easter because uh, Easter is originally the name of a pagan god. And uh, we know, of course, that that doesn't mean that we worship the goddess Easter, but uh, our world calls it Easter, but it's Resurrection Sunday. So stones that the resurrected Christ rolls away. Mark chapter 15, and I'll begin reading with verse 42. When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Now, John tells us in his gospel that Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of the Lord, but he was a silent or secret disciple for fear of the Jews, somewhat like Nicodemus who chose to go to the Lord at night rather than enter the day because being a member of the Sanhedrin and the council would not have gone over very well with the other members. And so they were... Uh, for a while, secret uh, disciples or silent disciples of the Lord, as we see in the story of the resurrection, they came out of their secrecy and hiddenness and, and made public by their actions that they were indeed committed followers of the Lord Jesus. But Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, and he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time and summoned the centurion. And he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. Now, according to verse 44, Pilate was surprised to learn that Christ had died so quickly because usually an individual who was being crucified uh, could stay there more hours than our Lord did. And sometimes it was known uh, that one could uh, maybe live on a cross for two, possibly three days. Very unusual to go that long. Uh, but to, for him to have only hung on the cross for just a few hours and then been considered dead caught uh, Pilate by surprise. But I remind you again that our Lord... Um, uh, gave up the ghost, as it says. Jesus said, as recorded in John chapter 10, I lay my life down. No man takes my life away from me. I lay it down and I will take it up again. So he chose to die. If he had not chosen to have died, he would have still lived on in his body. But he gave up the ghost. He laid down his life, but he took it up again on the resurrection. And so Pilate was somewhat surprised when um, Joseph of Arimathea came and requested the body, he called this centurion who evidently in charge of the crucifixion and asked if Jesus had really died. And then you'll notice in verse 45, it says, in ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body of Joseph. So what happened was the Roman soldier either verified that or he went back to double check and reported back to Pilate that yes, indeed, it was certain, it was true that Jesus had died. He, he didn't just pass out. He, he literally, literally, bodily died on the cross. Verse 46, Joseph bought a linen cloth, took Jesus down, wrapped him in the linen cloth and laid him in a tomb which had been cut out or hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Now, verse 46 says uh, you get the impression that Joseph did this all by himself, uh, but Joseph had some help. I don't visualize one single person being able to take the body or anybody's body off the cross by themselves. He would have had to have had some assistance. It would be just like uh, it was saying that Pilate 
uh, scourged Jesus or whipped Jesus. Uh, Pilate didn't whip him. Uh, he commanded that he be whipped. The Roman soldiers did it. So when it says that Joseph went and took the body of Jesus down from the cross, I visualize, and this is my own interpretation and thought, is that he must have had some help. Maybe the Roman soldiers helped him get him off the cross. Maybe Joseph, I mean, maybe Nicodemus uh, helped him get down because we shall see uh, that Nicodemus, the same one that's recorded in John 3, that Jesus said, you must be born again in order to enter the kingdom of God, brought a hundred pounds of spices. Uh, they didn't embalm bodies in those days like uh, we do today. And so when somebody died, uh, they would take these spices and uh, move, uh, smooth them over and rub them over the body or sprinkle them over the body as they would uh, wrap the body in linen cloth uh, in order to not preserve the body, but to take away the stench of the body. Because you remember when, when Jesus went out to where Lazarus was buried, uh, he had died and Jesus said, take the stone away from his, uh, his tomb. And, and they said to Jesus, well, he's been dead for four days. He's already stinking. His body is decaying. If you, if you die and you're not embalmed and depending on the weather, your body immediately begins to deteriorate. And after several hours, maybe a couple of days or so, your body will begin to, to smell. It will stench. And, and so they would use these spices to help uh, get a, the stench of the decaying body uh, away. And so Joseph uh, took down the, the, the body, <clears throat> took the linen cloth that he had bought, wrapped it in the linen cloth and laid him in a tomb which had been uh, hewn out in the rock. It was evidently Joseph's tomb. One of the other gospel writers reminds us that this was Joseph's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea. It was his tomb. He gave his tomb to Jesus. You know, you ought to do that to your tomb. You ought to do that to your grave. If you give your life to Jesus, in essence, you give your grave to Jesus too. That's why you'll live forever. When a body is laid to rest in the ground, you remember what it says about John the Baptist, that his disciples came and took it and buried it. Didn't take him and buried it, took it and buried it. Because the spirit of John the Baptist had left his body the moment he died. The moment he was beheaded, he went to heaven to be with the Lord. And his body was then an it. As I've told you many, many times before, I'm, one of my favorite expressions about death and dying for the Christian is what I heard a black preacher say on one time about a lady who had deceased. He pointed to the, gra to the, to the uh, casket and he, he said, she's not here today. She has saturated her body with her absence. <laughs> and, and so John was not there any longer in his body. Jesus was no longer in his body. They took it off the cross and buried it. They didn't bury Jesus, they buried it. Because when he died, when he bowed his head and said, it is finished and gave up the ghost, he departed his body and it became an it, if I can reverently and respectfully refer to it in that way. So Joseph brought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock and he rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, uh, were looking on to see where he had was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Now the stone uh, that was rolled in front of the tomb where Joseph buried Jesus uh, was a rather large stone. Uh, my translation, which is the New American Standard, says in verse 4 that it was extremely large. The King James just said it was very large. But the New American Standard says it was extremely large. For a stone uh, to... Uh, seal off the entrance to a, a tomb that was at least a minimum of four to five feet high that enabled them to get into the tomb and lay a body. Uh, the stone would have had to have been five feet, uh, six feet perhaps in diameter. It has been suggested that the stone would have weighed, uh, weighed between one and a half to two tons. I don't think a, one single man could have taken 
the stone and rolled it in place, two possible explanations. One, that the stone would have been in a, a little indented area and maybe at a little decline held there by a wedge and possibly uh, Joseph could have moved the wedge out from under it and would have caused it to roll down or else he had some help. I don't think he could have done it by himself. It was just too big of a stone and very extremely large weighing at one and a half to two tons. I don't know very many single men who could lift a stone like that or push it around like that. I think he would have, Nicodemus was there, maybe some others, we don't know, but at least Nicodemus and Joseph were there. Somehow or another, they were able to move the stone in place and seal it in order to keep animals from going in and ravaging the body or thieves to break in and steal any valuables that might have been buried with the deceased. But anyway, these women were coming to, uh, to, the, to the tomb and, and they were asking among themselves. And the, and the meaning of verse 3 is that they kept asking uh, each other. It, it was a topic of conversation. This was at the top of their list as to what they were talking about. They had not thought about how heavy the stone was and evidently had not asked or informed the men that they were going to the tomb. And so they were there by themselves. And so they begin asking back and forth with one another, who's going to roll the stone back for us? We're going to need some help. We can't do this by ourselves. So it was extremely large and difficult for them to handle. Then you'll notice in verse 4, looking up, <laughs> uh, it is believed that not only was Calvary, but the, uh, the tomb that was nearby uh, would have been elevated on a, on a little hill and, and they would have been walking uphill and therefore either their heads were bowed down as they were conversing with one another and then looked up or else when they did look up and looked forward, they saw, well, our problem has already been solved. The stone has already been moved. And as we've heard so many times before, the stone was not moved in order to let Jesus out. The stone was removed in order to let the world and these women and the whole world in to see that indeed Jesus had risen from the grave, that he was not dead, he was very much alive. And so it says, looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. He said to them, do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He's risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. And go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. And there you will see him just as he told you. The young man there, although it's called a young man, the other gospel writers say, uh, that he was an angel, that the angel did not raise Jesus from the dead. God the Father raised Jesus from the dead because we read that taking place in the Holy Gospels and in the references to the scriptures. For example, in Ephesians 1:17 and verse 20, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, raised him, Jesus, from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. And then in 1 Peter 3, 18, we are told that the Holy Spirit breathed again and brought to life the body, not Jesus, but the body, the spirit of the Lord brought life back to the body and Jesus re-inhabited his body and it was a glorified body now. So when Jesus, when the, when the angel came down and moved the stone away, Jesus had already risen. The grave clothes, we are told, were still lying in place as though his body just evaporated and was still in the shape of a human body except for the veil that had been placed over his head. It had been carefully folded and placed at the head indicating that no robber had entered there because a robber would not have taken such care uh, to, to lay everything so neatly there. They would have, in fact, would not have unrolled the body of Jesus. It would have been easier for them to carry a body out of the tomb that was still wrapped up in linen clothing uh, than it would have been to remove, remove the clothing and then leave the clothing there all in a bundle and then take the body away. So the fact that the clothes were just lying there still in place in the shape and form of a body with the linen cloth at the top that would say to them, Jesus indeed had risen from the dead 
and that he had done so, invis he was uh, invisible when it happened. Uh, it was silent, it was quiet, it was private, but it was miraculous. Jesus just came out of those clothes. He didn't have to open the, the stone and rolled in front of the, of the tomb. He just passed through it. Just like after he rose from the dead and appeared to the disciples in the upper room, he didn't open a door and walk in. He didn't crawl through a window. He just appeared. And yet they could touch him. They could see him. He said to Thomas, place your fingers and put it in the palm of my hand. Take your hand, thrust it into my side. Where did those scars come from? From his crucifixion. The only man-made thing that will ever be in heaven will be the scars of the body of Jesus Christ because man put them there. Everything else will be built and made and created by the Lord God himself. Jesus preparing a place, a home for each one of his children and what a glorious day it will be when we will join our resurrected Savior and to live for eternity in his presence. And so Jesus was there and he just, when he rose from the dead, he just came out of his body and went through the mountain and the stones and, 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 and came back three days and re-inhabited his body and, and his glorified resurrected body, one like you and I will have. And so when the women approached the tomb of Jesus, they said among themselves, it's an extremely large stone. Who in the world is going to help us move it? I like to think that some of the stones that they, or the stone that they uh, were facing that day represents some of the stones that you and I face. And they, like that stone, the stones that you and I face are extremely large. And it takes a power much greater than ours to move the stones that stand in the way of our being what God wants us to be. So there are five that I want to share with you in the moments that remain and because of the time we need to, to rush on into it. But the first stone that I see that needed to be removed and that Christ did roll away for the disciples was the stone of discouragement. The stone of discouragement. If there was any kind of spirit or attitude that pervaded the hearts and minds of these women and especially of the disciples, it was a spirit of discouragement. They were disappointed, they were discouraged because of what had happened to Jesus. They had put all of their hopes on him being the, the, the military Messiah who would ultimately lead them uh, out of the bondage, not only had been in Egypt, but now they were under the bondage of the Roman Empire and, and Caesar, and they were looking for the Messiah who would deliver them from that bondage as well. And when they had put all of their hopes in Christ, and then he died, their hopes died with it. And for this, I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the 24th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 24 records for us uh, the time when our Lord appeared to two disciples who were walking uh, back to Emmaus from where they had come. And uh, they are discussing among themselves uh, about Jesus and uh, the hopes that they had put in him uh, that had been shattered. Uh, Jesus appears to them on the road to Emmaus and I want to pick up uh, with verse um, 21. Well, let's go, let's go back to verse 19. And he said to them, what things? They were discussing the things that had happened. And they said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene. He, he was a prophet, mighty indeed, and, and word in, in the sight of God and the people. And, and how the chief priest and our rulers delivered him to the, the sentence of death. And, and they crucified him. But, but Notice verse 21. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. And of course that word hope carries the idea of an anticipation. You might say they had put, if they'd been gambling, they'd put all their money on him. I mean, he's a sure win. He's the Messiah we've been longing for and praying for and waiting for. And we'd put all of our hope in him that he was going to lead us into freedom. But now they took him and crucified him. And now our hope is gone. And so they were greatly discouraged. It says in verse 21, but we were hoping were what were they hoping for? Well, he tells you in the rest of the verse. For we were hoping, what for? That it was he who was going to redeem Israel. And indeed, besides all of this, this is the third day since things had happened. So they had their hope in Jesus. Well, you know, we have our hope in Jesus too. But the word hope there doesn't carry the same meaning 
that you and I uh, give to it today. When we say, well, I'm, I, I hope so. Well, we say, well, I'm not quite sure, uh, but I'm hoping it will. Uh, not certain, but hopefully it'll, it'll work out. Well, in the Bible, the word hope is never used with that meaning. In the Bible, the word hope is always used with the idea of confidence, with assurance, there's no question, there's no doubt about this. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is true. And so the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. So our hope relies not only in the salvation that our Lord provides, but in the assurance and confidence beyond a shadow of a doubt that because he lives, we too shall live. And so we need to remove the, uh, the, the stone of, of, dis- of discouragement and disappointment. 2 Corinthians 1, 9 and verse 10. I love this two verses. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Now notice, who delivered us and will deliver us and will yet deliver us on whom we have set our hope. God has, he did, he has, and he will. He will raise you from the dead. If you have put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, when it comes time for you to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you have the blessed assurance where Jesus said, because I live, you too shall live. I am the resurrection and the life. Whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Never die. And we have that hope. We have that encouragement. The real problem was not in their heads, but in their hearts. You still have your Bibles open to Luke 24. Look at verse 25. And Jesus said to them, O foolish men, And slow of heart. Slow of heart. Look at verse 32. They said one to another, When did not our hearts burn within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And look at verse 38. And and Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? So it wasn't a head problem. It was a heart problem here. And, and Jesus said, why are you slow in your heart to understand about the resurrection? And Jesus, we're told in the passage, began with the writings of Moses and the prophets and unfolded and interpreted and taught to them the truths of the Old Testament scriptures that pertain to him. And when they got to Emmaus, And Jesus disappeared. They looked at one another and said, you remember we were walking along the road and as he explained the scriptures to us, our heart was on fire. God's word to do that for you. If you'll take the time to look at it and read it and meditate on it, God's spirit will set it on fire in your heart. So it was a heart problem. Do you get discouraged? (laughs) Discouragement is unique to human beings and it's universal. Everybody gets discouraged at times. I have no doubt that some of you are here today are experiencing discouragement. You might even be discouraged about this very moment. Life's experiences don't always turn out the way we want them to. Even the most dedicated follower of Christ is likely to experience moment of discouragement. Notice this, not only Christ moves away the stone of discouragement, but Christ rolls away the stone of doubt. The stone of doubt. You know, poor Thomas, he's been labeled uh, doubting Thomas, and understandably so, because in the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus, we are told, appeared to the disciples who were waiting uh, behind closed doors for fear of the Jews, and, and Thomas was not there. We don't, we're never told where Thomas was. Uh, maybe he didn't get the email, I don't know, about the announcement. But he wasn't there. And so Jesus appeared to them, and uh, then later they, they said to Thomas, oh, man, you should have been here. The Lord, the Lord was here. And Thomas said, I don't believe it. 
I won't believe it unless I can see it with my own eyes, unless I can take my hand and place them where the scars are on his body. I won't believe it until I can see him myself. And so because he doubted, uh, then he's called Doubting Thomas. But I want to share it with you. Thomas was not the only one who doubted. All of the other disciples doubted too. And there's scriptures to back it up. Just write the references or just listen. Matthew 28, 17. When they saw Jesus, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. Now get this image in your mind. They are standing in the presence of Jesus. He is in his glorified body. And it says that they worshiped him, but there were still some although they were looking at Jesus, doubted whether or not it was real. Luke chapter 24, verse 11. The women returned to the disciples to tell them that Jesus had risen. But Luke 24, 11 says, but these words about his having been raised were to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. Luke 24, 38, when Jesus appeared to the disciples in the upper room, he rebuked them. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Luke 24, 41, while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? He said, let me show you that I'm alive. And he took some bread and ate it, took some wine and drank it. And so he was alive. Mark 16 and verse 14, Jesus reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had been raised from the dead. Every single one of the other disciples, the 10 of them that were left because Judas went out and hung himself. So there were only 11 disciples left. Thomas had already said, I don't believe unless I see for myself. The others didn't believe any more than he did. Someone said you ought to think of doubt as an invitation to think. It's not wrong to doubt if you allow doubts that you have in your heart about the Lord or about anything else regarding the Bible or the scriptures or whatever. If you'll use it to lead you to find the truth. Adrian Rogers uh, printed, published a book several years ago called uh, the the uh, spiritual power of the resurrected life. And uh, he tells about a, a, a man who called him one day on the phone and, and he said, my wife is suicidal and I want you to talk to her. And Rogers agreed to do so, provided the man would come with him, with her. And so they were in his office and they were talking and, and the wife began to, to tell, pour her heart out uh, to, to Rogers uh, uh, about the kind of husband she was having to live with. He was cruel. He was unfaithful. He drank all the time. He gambled all the time. And Rogers said that he turned to this man and he said, Sir, are you a Christian? And he explains in the book, he says, uh, he was not asking the man if he was a Christian to get information from him, but in order to start a conversation with him. And so the man threw his head back and he laughed, No, I'm not a Christian. I'm an atheist. And Rogers said, well, uh, uh, an atheist is one who doesn't know that there's a God. Do you know all that there is to know? Uh, well, of course not, he shot back. Would it be generous for me to say to you that you know at least half of all that there is to know? And he said, well, yeah, that would be very generous. Then if you only know half of all there is to know, wouldn't you have to admit the possibility that God would exist in the body of knowledge that you don't yet know? And he said, well, I never thought of that. Oh, well, I'm not an atheist. I'm an agnostic. Well, we're getting somewhere. Agnosticism means you don't know. And he said, I didn't tell him that the Latin equivalent of, for agnostic is ignoramus. <laughs> an agnostic is a doubter. Well, that's what I am. And I'm a big one. I'm a big doubter. Well, I don't care what size as much as what kind. There are two kinds of doubters, honest and dishonest. The honest doubter doesn't know, but he wants to know. The dishonest doubter doesn't know because he doesn't want to know, and he can't find God for the same reason that the thief can't find a policeman. He's not looking for him. 
Well, the man's face began to soften, and I never really thought about it that way. I guess I never really wanted to know, he said. Did you know that there is a promise in the Bible regarding an honest doubter? Uh, in John chapter 7, verses 16 and 17, Jesus said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. And if any man will do God's will, he will know of the doctrine, whether it be of the Lord or not, or whether I'm just speaking of myself. And so in plain English, uh, that says that if a man will surrender his will completely, and God will reveal himself to that man. And to make a longer story shorter, the man eventually did. Rogers said, you take the gospel of John and read it and ask God to speak to your heart and show himself to you, and he will. The man eventually got saved. You read the last chapter or so of John's gospel, and John tells you why he wrote the gospel. These things are written that you might know and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So Jesus will remove the stone of doubt. Number three, Christ rolls away the stone of dread, the stone of dread, which is also fear. In Matthew chapter 16, going back to Matthew, uh, excuse me, Mark chapter 16, and verses six and eight, and he said to them, do not be amazed. You're looking, the, the angel did, for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified, he's, he's risen, he's not here. Behold, he, here's the place. Go tell the disciples that he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. And they went out and fled from the tomb, both for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. 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 So fear came into their hearts when they found that Jesus was not there. But Jesus rolls away the stone of fear, whatever fear you might have regarding your relationship to God. Any fear in your life, God will remove the stone from it. Isaiah 35, verses 3 and 4 from the New Living Translation. With this news, strengthen those who have tired hands and encourage those who have weak knees. Say to those who have fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear. For your God is coming to destroy your enemies. He's coming to save you. That was the prophecy of Isaiah some 500 years before it actually happened, but he was talking about the birth of Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Number four, Christ rolls away the stone of defeat. The stone of defeat. In Mark chapter 16 and verse seven, the angel said to the women, Go, tell his disciples and Peter. Why do you think the angel singled out Peter? Why didn't he single out John or Matthew or any of the other disciples? Why Peter? Because it was Peter who denied the Lord. You remember, not once, not twice, but three times. He denied the Lord. And then he went out and he wept bitterly. Judas, you remember, betrayed him, went out and hung himself. There's a difference there in repentance and just feeling sorry that you'd done what you'd done. Peter didn't just have remorse. It broke his heart because the third time that he denied Jesus, the scripture says Jesus was looking right at him. And he heard that rooster crow. And uh, he went out and wept bitterly, wept bitterly. <laughs> I, every time I think about that rooster crow, and I remember what Carlos Gruber, the late Carlos Gruber, told us one time when we went over to Latvia and uh, to preach the gospel over there. And the Lutheran churches, it's a strong Lutheran country, and, and the Lutheran churches over there, instead of having crosses on the top of their steeples, they have roosters. And they point him in the direction of the Catholic Church <laughs> to remind the Catholics that their first pope denied the Lord three times. <laughs> well, forgive me, Catholics. I don't, I don't mean to. <laughs> I just thought it was funny. I didn't see, seeing those roosters growing. And Peter denying him. It broke his heart. He went out and wept. 
And he said, you be sure and tell Peter, I want to see it. I want to see it. And you read the last chapters of John's gospel. And Peter said, I'm going fishing. So he goes out and he and the disciples and they're fishing. Jesus is on the, on the bank and he's preparing a breakfast for them. And, and they look up and they see it's Jesus. Peter jumps in the water and swims over there and he's standing there in his wet clothes because he didn't take his clothes off. He just jumped in the water and he went over there. Jesus had some fish frying and, and, and catfish frying and <laughs> French fries and the whole works. Homemade ice cream, maybe. There was a fire there. Last time Peter probably stood by a fire was the night that he had denied the Lord because he was standing in the courtyard warming himself. A young girl came up to you. You're one of them, aren't you? I saw you with him. No, I don't know him. Oh, yes, you did. I saw you. You sound like him, too. You come from the same country. I don't know him. And the third time he denied him and he cursed and he went out with a broken heart. He failed his Lord. He said, I'll never deny you. I'll go and die with you, he said. And here he is tucking tail and running away like a coward. And Jesus was reassuring him, he's forgiven. I'm not gonna cast you aside. You're still useful to me, Peter. And you're gonna spread the gospel all around, all around. History tells us and legends tells us that Peter was crucified, only he chose to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy enough to be crucified right side up like his Lord. But Jesus looked at him and said, Peter, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know I like you. He said, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I like you. Then tend to my flock. And then he turned it in the Greek language and he said to Peter, Peter, do you like me? And Peter said, Lord, you know I love you. Then tend to my flock, he said. Do you love Jesus? What are you doing about it? Oh, you failed many times. Yes, we all fail, don't we? I've failed so many times I could fill this room up with the mistakes that I've made. You could too. But the good news is Jesus loves you and he forgives you and he reinstates you. He won't cast you over to the side and not use you anymore. If you're willing to open your heart and life up to him, he will empower you. The final stone that needs to be rolled away and that Christ does is the stone of death. The stone of death. Mark 16 and verse 6, and the angel said to them, do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they have laid him. Come and see for yourself. So the good news of Easter is that Jesus is not dead. He's alive. He's alive. He's alive. And because he is alive, you and I don't have to fear death. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't have to be afraid to die. You don't have to be afraid of death. You don't have to be afraid of the funeral home. You don't have to be afraid of the cemetery. And I like to quickly, in the moments that remain, just I don't have time to elaborate on, just let me share, share with you why you don't need to be afraid to die. First, because when, when you come, if you are a believer in Jesus, when it comes time for you to die, you won't be by yourself. You won't be. I don't care if you're out in the middle of the desert somewhere or out in the ocean somewhere all by yourself, not another person with 100,000 miles of you. If you are by yourself, when it comes time for you to die, you don't have to be afraid because Psalm 23 says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. Jesus said, I'll never leave you. I'll never desert you. I'll never forsake you. I'll always be with you 24-7, every second, every moment, every hour, every day, every week, every month, every year of your life. Christ is with you 
And wherever you are, whether you're in a car wreck or in the hospital and lying on your deathbed or you're out on a battlefield somewhere or somebody breaks into your house and kills you or whatever, you die of a heart disease or some kind of cancer or whatever it might be, whenever that time comes, you'll not be alone. Christ will be with you. And you won't have to be afraid to die. Secondly, the same reason why you don't have to be afraid to die is because Christ has conquered death. Yes, and he's made a promise to you because I live, you too shall live. I go to prepare a place for you. That's another reason why you don't have to die because when you die, you know what happens when you die as a Christian? Remember old John the Baptist? They took it. (laughs) To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And there's no purgatory. There's no highway, halfway house where you're going to go over there and stay for a while. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus said to the dying thief on the cross, tomorrow maybe or next month you'll be with me in paradise. No. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said today you will be with me in paradise. And where is paradise? Where Jesus is. Wherever Jesus is, that's paradise. And when you die as a believer in Christ, you're going to go be with him. You're going to be with Jesus. There'll no longer be a veil between you and the Lord. You're going to look upon the blessed face of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And like Thomas, I suppose, if he wanted to, you can see the scars in the palms of his hands. You can thrust your hand into his side. He'll be there with you. And you can sit down and visit with him and share with him and love him and worship him and honor him through all eternity. And you'll do his bidding because when we get to heaven, we're going to be busy serving the Lord. Death leads us into the presence of the Lord. And Jesus said, I go there in my father's house are many mansions, present tense. The mansions are already there. You may go back and reread it. In my father's house are many mansions. They already exist. But as I'm going to prepare one of them for you. And if I go and prepare one for you, I'm coming back to receive you unto myself. So we're going to be with the Lord and he's preparing a special place for you. Handmade, tailor-made, just for you. My. And then when we get to, to heaven, we'll be rewarded in heaven. Death introduces us into happiness at the Father's right hand. There are pleasures forevermore. The parable of the talents where he gave five to one, two to another. The third one, only one, but he had his taken away from it because he was not faithful in, in, in taking the talents that had been given to him and using them. But to the other two, Jesus said, you have been faithful over a few things. I'll give you many, and I'm paraphrasing it here, give you many more things to do. So I don't know what we're going to be doing in heaven, but based on how faithful I am to what the Lord entrusts to me now, he's going to assign me different responsibilities when I get to heaven. And then he said, enter into the joy of my Lord. It's a happy place. It's a joyful place. Death introduces us to happiness. Death enters us into God's eternal rest and promises us our resurrection. I'm going to have a body just like our Lord's. It's going to, beloved, he tells us in 1 John, what manner of love hath the Father bestowed upon us? We do not yet see him, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What does it mean to be like Jesus? What does it mean to have a body like our Lord's? Well, you remember, I told you earlier, when Jesus appeared to the disciples, he just appeared. He didn't walk through a wall, crawl through a a door, whatever. I mean, he didn't uh, crawl through a window or or open a door and walk in. He, He just appeared. Yet they could see him, they could talk to him, they could touch him, he could eat, he could drink, he got ready to go, he just vanished. He had a glorified, sanctified body and he says, we're going to be like him. Mortals shall put on immortality, corruption shall be put on incorruption and then shall be brought to pass the saying, oh death, where is your sting? Oh grave, where is the victory you hope to win? I'm going to have a supernatural body. I'm not ever going to fall again. I'm not ever going to have another heart attack. I'm going to live forever. Jesus promised me I would. And he says, you're going to have a new body. 
You know, I've said this many times at funerals, especially at the graveside. Scientists tell us that every seven years, you get a new body. The cells in your body are constantly dying off and being replaced. So every seven years, you get the equivalent of a whole new body. If you don't believe that, you go home, get out your old high school annual, look at your picture. <laughs> and then look in the mirror and tell me you haven't changed. I don't know about you, but I've gotten better looking. I don't know. <laughs> well, my wife says I have anyway. And whenever I die, however old that will be, my next body will be a glorified body. <laughs> oh, man. Can you just imagine in your mind what that's going to be like? Well, my time is up, and I've got two or three things to say, and I'll, I'll be wrapped wrapping all of this up. These things that I have shared with you about removing the stone of discouragement or doubt or dread or defeat or death can only be removed by the power of God himself. It was not the angel who raised the body of Jesus. It was the Father. Now the angel came and the earthquake happened and the stone rolled away but it was the spirit of God that quickened his body and brought it back to life. It was the power of God that brought him back from the dead. And those stones that are blocking whatever there is in your life that you're dealing with will be removed by the power of God if you will allow him to do it. The second thing is how important it is to believe because these disciples were slow of heart and reluctant to believe that, I mean, these were the disciples who had lived for three years side by side with him. They walked with him. They slept with him. They ate with him. They witnessed his miracles. They heard his teachings. They even looked at his face after he had been raised from the dead and still didn't believe. Believing is important. The Bible tells us that we need to be careful lest we have an evil heart of unbelief. So a person who doubts, it's not a head problem. It's a heart problem. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? God says through Jeremiah the prophet, I know man's heart. I know how evil it is. And in essence, he could say, I'm the only one who can change it. God to change your heart if you'll give him the opportunity to do so. And then the final thing, not only the power of God and the importance of believing, but we need to look up to Jesus, okay? Again, going back to these women, they were discussing among themselves, who's gonna move the stone? Who's, how are we gonna get that stone out of the way so we can get in and do what we're here to do? And then they looked up. And if it was true that they were walking up a hill and they could see the tomb and the stone's already been moved. <laughs> it's already been moved. Looking up, they saw. <laughs> Looking up, they saw. You need, you need to get your eyes off yourself. You need to get your eyes off your problems. You need to get your eyes off the stones and look to Jesus. He'll move them for you. He's the only one who can. And we can look beyond the stone of discouragement and doubt and dread and defeat and death. Look and see. Through Isaiah the prophet, he said, look unto me and be ye saved, all ye ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Philippians 3.20, for our behavior is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You look to Calvary and get saved by faith. But you look east. Someday Jesus is coming back. It could be today. It could be. Would you be ready? I mean, if Jesus were to come right now and, and snatch you away and you're in his presence, would you welcome him with open arms or would you have to shrink back in shame and defeat? 
the saddest words that any human being can ever hear from Jesus are these. Depart from me. I never knew you. Let's bow together. Holy Spirit of God, we know that you are here today. You live within us. You, you live in our hearts. You're, you're Jesus in the Spirit. And I pray that you'll remove the stone of doubt and disbelief for anything that is standing in the way of our making a decision for you today. I ask in the name of the Lord Jesus and on the authority of his shed blood that you banned Satan from this place now. If there's a stone that's to be moved in the way, let it be a stone that would block Satan from entering into our minds and our hearts to steal away the truth of the seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ that he and he alone is, can save us. He hates those words. So don't let him put those thoughts in our minds. Help us to focus our full undivided attention upon you. And Father, if there's someone here today who's never been saved, may they pray this prayer. Oh, Lord Jesus, I admit to you that I'm a sinner. And I know that Jesus is your son. And I'm turning my, away from my sins to you, Jesus. And I'm, I'm asking you the only way I know how to forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart. I, I, I accept you. I commit myself to you as my Lord and my Savior. I want to go to heaven when I die. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. So if you're here today and you've prayed that prayer for the first time and you feel that God is calling you to make your decision public, I'll be here at the front. If there's someone dealing with, I'm dealing with, there other staff members will be here as well. If God is speaking to you in some way to join our church or whatever it may be, if God's speaking to you, you come now as we stand together and sing.